And now I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. And for those of you who are visiting today, um, we have a Bible provided for you, and you'll find our text on page 840. Page 840. If you thought our Old Testament reading today was interesting, listen to these words from Mark 5, 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. He did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Some texts of Scripture need an introduction. Others, like this one, need a warning. In light of the text today, I think there are two pitfalls that you should be aware of before we even get into the message. The first pitfall would be denial or disbelief. Reading something like this and thinking, this is incredulous. There's no way that this could ever possibly happen. The other pitfall is an inordinate interest 
and the devil, his activities, and what's going on in this text. You could probably think of a million and one different questions as you're reading through, like, why did this happen, and why didn't that happen, and why did Jesus allow this and that, and how do demons work? In his typically creative way, C.S. Lewis warns of these dangers in his preface to Screwtape Letters, which is a novel, by the way, of a demon and his understudy trying to tempt man. It's extremely interesting if you've never read it. But here's his opening lines. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, talking about demons and devils, are equally pleased with both errors. And hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Well said. I think he captures the experience very well. We tend to flounder back and forth, sometimes ignorant of Satan's schemes leading to our harm, and sometimes overwhelmed by Satan's schemes leading also to our harm. We waffle back and forth from superstitious to skeptical. How then, in light of our constant vacillation, how then should we view our relationship to the spiritual world? It's complex. But I would suggest today that we could actually, with one story, prepare ourselves to properly deal with the onslaught of spiritual darkness. I would go so far as to say that I think even today, the central truth of this text, if properly understood, we could imbibe the appropriate response to spiritual evil. And I think it can come from these 20, 20 verses. Now, the only way this will happen, by the way, is if we will be careful to note Mark's emphasis and to avoid our own speculations concerning the supernatural. We have to pay attention. If we will navigate this text appropriately this morning, we must pay attention to where Mark places his emphasis and be careful not to derail ourselves with vain speculation. So with that being said, let me prepare you as well as I can for this text. As you know, Mark has been chronicling the good news par excellence. He has been showing that God's promised hero, his very own son, has come in the person of Jesus. And in the first section, if I were to sum it all up, what we've seen in the first three, the four chapters, we've seen the authority of Jesus. We've seen his right to rule. But as we transition into chapter four and now into chapter five, we begin to see the power of Jesus, his might to rule. One is his right, the other is his might, his power, his ability. And specifically, we've seen, we will see, by the time it's all said and done, four different portraits of his power. The first one we saw last week, his power over nature. The one that we'll look at next week will be his power over disease and even death. But this week, 
we're going to see his power over demonic darkness. And this power will show us again that only God could do these things. So today we're going to recount the text in three simple acts. Acts, like acts in a play. So as to impress us with Jesus' divine power over evil. So if you're taking notes, Act 1, the demonic stronghold. We'll find that in verses 1 through 5. The demonic stronghold. And did you notice, by the way, when we read through these first few verses, did you notice the time with which Mark spent describing the defiled habitat of this demon-possessed man and his demonic power? This is really important to the text. Look at, notice, by the way, his, his defiled place, where he comes from in verses 1 through 3a. It says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, and he lived among the tombs. Now let me just give you the brief snapshot of what's happening here. One terrifying event has followed another. These men have just barely escaped with their lives. Jesus has rescued them with his mere words. They're scared to death, not of the storm, but of Jesus himself. And yet presumably in the same day, night, next morning, sometime close because it was only a five to six mile journey from where they were to where they ended up. They're not even on the shore yet and they're being approached by some crazy man from out of a tomb. It's a startling picture. Mark is careful to note the intensity of this man's living situation two times in two verses. He says, out of the tombs, out of the tombs. Now, immediately the original readers of this would have been struck by a couple of facts. Just from having heard these few verses already, first of all, they would have noted that Jesus has left the Jewish region of Galilee for the Gentile region of Gergesa in the Decapolis. So you just need to understand that he's in a different neighborhood. The Decapolis was a region that represented a coalition of cities united by their exemplary displays of Hellenism. Or, if we were trying to Christianize this, we would say their exemplary displays of worldly culture. As Jews, they valued Jewish culture. They did not appreciate Hellenistic Greek culture. They thought that it was anti-God and that it threatened the establishment. And therefore, they're going to the paragon of Gentile living. I think for those of us who have grown up maybe in conservative backgrounds in the South, it would be like going to a really bad town. I, think, I, I can't help but think of how my family viewed my transition from little Greenville, North Carolina to Los Angeles. <laughs> it was not a neutral mood. Oh, they said, oh, L.A., that's, that's Hollywood, and that's where, you know, all, all the homosexuals live, and that's where liberal politics is, and there's forest fires and earthquakes, and they just made it seem like the worst place on the planet. In a similar way, that's how the Jews would have viewed the Decapolis. Who would go there? This is a defiled area. Not only that, but he comes from the tombs. <laughs> now, to, to, to grasp the picture here, you can't think of neatly manicured American graveyards with green grass and straight rows and white marble tombstones. 
Graveyards in those in that part of the Near East were basically rocky hillsides with multiple crypts hollowed out of the side of a mountain. The site itself is pretty creepy. There would normally be on the outside of town, and it's just this kind of ominous place. And for adherents of Judaism, it's especially creepy. There's an added element of horror because tombs represented something that was contaminated, something that was ceremonially defiled. The popular interpretation of that day, of Numbers 19, verses 11 to 20, declared that anyone who came into contact with death, not just touching a dead body, but anyone who touched a tomb, anyone who was close to a tomb, they were considered to be unclean. And by that, they meant especially distant from God. Now, refusal to go through cleanliness rituals would actually lead someone to be excommunicated from the nation of Israel. They would not be allowed to participate in the assembly. And so there's a double strike against this. Not only would it be like me going to Los Angeles from Little Greenville, North Carolina, but it'd be like me going to Skid Row. This is an especially shady place and an especially intimidating country. Why would Jesus come here of all the places on the Galilean shore that he could have landed? Why here? This almost seems like a stronghold of Satan and satanic defilement. And notice not only where he lived, but notice what this man did as we look at the second half of verse 3 on into verse 5. It says, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with the chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now, did you notice here that in three different ways, Mark mentions their failed attempts to bind this man, to subdue him? I particularly like the word subdue that you see there in the ESV. It's the same word that's used in James 3, 7 to talk about the taming of wild animals. That's basically how Mark characterizes this man. He is an out-of-control, animal-like figure, and his behavior is threatening to himself and others. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you've seen a grown man out of control, but it is not pretty. Yet, the interesting thing is that no one was strong enough to contain him. No technology, no tool could keep him bound. At least in our own day and age, we could think, okay, the police could come in and they could restrain someone and they could put someone in cuffs and therefore neutralize the threat. But this man is a roaming threat. They can't do anything to stop him. It's a terrible situation. Instead of actually being able to bind him, the verb invites us to observe the man continually, night and day, screaming and cutting himself with stones among this mountainous necropolis. In my more contemplative moments of reading this text, I can't help but be impressed by the, the devastating picture of the satanic decimation of the image of God in man. It's one of the saddest scenes in all of Scripture to me. 
It makes me think of our native slavery, slavery to the satanic realm. And it reminds me that it's nothing to laugh at, it's nothing to overlook, but it's something to lament. The presence of Satan in this world and his effect upon image bearers is devastating. And in the end, this man's life has been ruined, and everyone has abandoned hope for his recovery and his well-being, and the situation really seems hopeless. So the question that we have to ask ourselves when we're reading the text is, why would Mark spill so much ink on this? I would say that he's setting up the victory to come. See, this is an impressive display of demonic power with an equally intimidating home court advantage. And so Mark wants us to grasp the reality of the demonic darkness before we can appreciate the decisive of victory that will be wrought by Christ in the latter verses. It actually reminds me of J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. You may remember the line where they're contemplating this assault upon Mordor. And they're reminded, One does not simply walk into Mordor. Its black gates are guarded by more than just orcs. There is evil there that does not sleep. The great eye is ever watchful. It's a barren wasteland riddled with fire, ash, and dust. And the very air you breathe is a poisonous fume. That's a great line. It invites you to see this stronghold filled with orcs and Nazgul and their powerful leader Sauron. And it seems to be this unconquerable fortress of evil. Why would Tolkien do that? Because he wants to set up the victory to come. We do this all the time. I think of a World War II veteran describing the Nazi war machine ravaging Europe. The fortified beaches of Normandy with their high precipices and rocky crags and concrete machine gun nests. And it seems impenetrable. Or even think of it in the realm of athletics. It's only a couple years ago here where we knew of a local team that had played an away game against the seemingly bigger, faster, stronger, and more privileged team. Florida Gulf Coast 2013 making it to the big dance and facing a number two seed as a number 15 Georgetown? Can you imagine how those guys, having achieved one of the greatest upsets of their college basketball history, would tell that story to their kids? They're probably going to exaggerate everybody's height, and they're going to talk about how intimidating the environment was. Why? Because they want to set up the reality of the great victory that was wrought by them. The whole reason why Mark would spend so much time Painting this picture for us is because the impossibility of the situation sets up a fitting contrast to come. Mark's focus on the astonishing strength of the man actually emphasizes the strength of the stronger man to come. Therefore, before we advance any further in this text, the most practical thing that we could do is to acknowledge the reality of evil in our world. I need you to lend me your imaginations for a moment. Take a second and think through the most intimidating satanic stronghold on your horizon. 
for the more skeptical among us, by the way, let me take a moment to review. If you don't have any idea of where satanic strongholds would be, if you weren't able to attend our study on demonology a few weeks ago, let me give you a brief overview of how demons and Satan work. For the original disciples viewing this event, by the way, and they're not even mentioned in this account, such a sight seemed untouchable. While they've seen Jesus exercise demons before, these extremely superstitious Jews would have been intrigued by this demon's impressive stature and home court advantage. Now, I would have not had to tell an ancient Near Eastern audience about the reality of demons, but it's important for me to talk about that this morning in this context. See, we need to understand that Jesus' ministry had a unique effect upon the spiritual forces of darkness. When he was present here on this earth, demonic activity was forced out into the open with his powerful presence. If you could imagine like somebody turning a flashlight on into a cockroach-infested place. It's the light itself that causes the things to scurry. You see them. And in a similar way, it was the brightness of Jesus as he made his way into this world where the demons would have preferred to remain covert and hidden. They were forced out into the open. So what about today? Well, as the light of the gospel has penetrated our world, And the illuminating physical presence of Jesus has not yet returned to force spiritual evil into the open. For the last couple of thousand years, Christians have been pushing back against demonic forces of darkness, even if they do not regularly acknowledge it. Gravity is still there whether you acknowledge it or not. The wind still blows whether you can see it or not. And for 2,000 years, Christians have been preaching the gospel and undermining the forces of darkness whether they acknowledge it or not. I would say, by the way, for those who are in frontier mission situations, they see more of this than we typically do. But here's how they work, so you know. As angels submitted to Satan's schemes, that's what a demon is, it's a fallen angel. They advance satanic agenda, and they still do so. How? Three main ways. The first would be by defacing the image of God and man. Demons long to oppress or possess people to such a point that they would deface the image of God and man. When you see people destroying themselves, mutilating themselves, when you see expressions of sexual perversion that lead to all kinds of transmitted diseases, when you see physical and emotional oppression, it is likely that there is some type of demonic presence behind that. That's not natural. It doesn't make sense for people to do that kind of thing. Yet Satan loves to deface the image of God in man. There's a second way that we see demons working today. And that is by blinding people to the light of the gospel. This is actually the most prominent use throughout the New Testament. Demons are most often associated with doctrinal error. The reason why people get the gospel wrong and why some people cannot receive it or understand it is because 2 Corinthians reminds us that Satan has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. They're doubly blinded. They're once blinded by the hardness of their hearts, and then they're blinded again by Satan himself. And so when we see so much doctrinal perversion and confusion and people who just won't receive the light of the gospel as much as we plead with them, Satan's probably behind it. And then there's a third way. They oppose godly living. And this is actually what Lewis was writing about the screw tape letters. We see this happening all the time. Ephesians 6 reminds us that we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers and wickedness and dark and high places. 
So when we are enticed with pride or possessions or inordinate expressions of sexual gratification, these things are being the bait or being used as the bait of Satan himself. So, that being said, here's the question for us. How are demons and Satan at work today? You have to get this or you won't understand the rest of the message. It will just seem so foreign to you. For those who weren't directly dealing with someone that's demon-possessed, which I doubt is anyone in this room that you know of, what does this mean for us? How does this coming victory of Christ that we'll see in the next verses help us? Well, let's think of how it helped them. For the original readers of Mark, it would have been a promising thing to know that the satanic strongholds that were located in the Roman Empire as they would be oppressed for their preaching of the gospel and the early hostility to the Christian message and the popularity of pagan worship, it would be good for them to know that Jesus' power could overcome those things. What about us? What satanic strongholds do we see in our world today? Well, I've thought of a few. Typically, when we think of locations like Vegas or Hollywood, we think of that as a satanic stronghold. We think of the unique influence of Satan that comes out of those places. Some people would think of Washington, D.C. and the corruption that is typically seen in politicians. Some people would give it a different location. They would see satanic stronghold as the Internet or the LGBTQ agenda, especially as it tries to overtake the educational system in the United States. Some may think more of the urban ghetto, or the nation of Islam, or the Roman Catholic Church, or communist China, or North Korea. And all of these types of things we could see and imagine that there would be some influence of satanic working in that. And when we see these things, we realize with like the illustrations from earlier, this is the impenetrable, this is the unconquerable, this is the long shot. And yet we'll be reminded that even Jesus could overcome these things. Let me ask one more question before we move on. What about the satanic strongholds, not in our world, but in your world? For many men, it's pornography. For some in the church, it could be same-sex attraction. For others, it could be out-of-control consumer debt, a deteriorating marriage, an unsaved or unreceptive family member, an unconquerable temper, oppressive anxiety. Do you think it's Jesus that wants those things? Who do you think's behind that? So with that in mind, thinking of these satanic strongholds in our own lives and in our world, we need to move on to the next section. Hold that in your mind for a moment, and let's move on from Act 1, the demonic stronghold, to Act 2, the decisive victory, and particularly be on the lookout for how Jesus decisively triumphs over the stronghold of evil, the decisive victory. Now, verse 6 tells us, and when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now, I think that this is interesting to note here how the obeisance of evil to Jesus, how it just like respects him, it reverences him, 
even from the very outset, by his very presence, just by showing up on the shore, evil already begins to submit to Jesus. He doesn't even provoke it. He doesn't seek it out. It seeks him out because it's scared to death of him. His presence is so intimidating that the demon immediately runs to him so as to plea, if it was in a court of law, no contest. I'm acknowledging whatever charge you're going to place before me. Or use military terminology. He's already waving the, the white flag of surrender. He knows that it's not going to do him any good to hide or to run away. But Jesus is here and therefore he must surrender. And he does so through several means. First of all, he bows down and shows obeisance or reverence or superiority. Notice that. Bows down. It's a common practice in the Near East in which placing oneself physically lower than the other acknowledges the superiority of the person in front of you. And in a similar way, that's what this demon is doing. He's acknowledging Christ's superiority, but let me be clear, he's not repenting. <laughs> Even through his question, he says, what have you to do with me, Jesus? Which is basically a Jewish idiom for, please get out of my face. He doesn't. You don't belong in my realm. I don't belong in your realm. We should be apart from one another. This is not a repentant demon, but it certainly is a submissive one. It recognizes Christ's authority through its bowing. And then notice that it identifies Jesus as, and guess what? Nobody, no human yet in the book of Mark has done this. He identifies Jesus as the Son of the Most High God. It's an amazing title with which he recognizes him, when you talk about the son of the Most High God, that was a common Old Testament name that talked about the exaltation of Israel's God over the pagan gods. I mean, you even hear it in the term. It's a superlative. Most High God. Not the higher God, not a high God, but the Most High God. So he recognizes Jesus' supreme status even through the title that he gives him. And then notice this, that he begs Jesus not to torment him not to torture him. Some of the fallen angels had already been sent into the abyss. They had already been cast into hell. And Luke 8.31, the parallel account, actually tells us that. Do not torment us by sending us into the abyss. Jesus had that authority. He could have done that. If you want to research that some more, look up 2 Peter 2.4 or Jude 6. But we need to keep the focus on this text. Jesus had the authority to destroy this demonic darkness immediately. And they knew it. But notice that there's not only this obeisance of evil to Jesus, but there's an obedience of evil to Jesus. It obeys his commands. Look at verse 8. It says, For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, the unclean you unclean spirit. Now, that's just the overview. We know that's going to happen just by speaking. Jesus doesn't do anything fancy or technical. He just speaks, and eventually this demon will leave. But notice the specifics of this in verse 9. Jesus begins by asking him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, I like what Jesus does here, because by asking the demon his name, he actually forces the demon to reveal its stronghold. The people around needed to know that this wasn't just one demon, but this was actually several and the demon doesn't have any problem acknowledging that. He acknowledges the plurality with his name. He says, legion, and then notice, for we are many. A Roman legion was 
typically anywhere from three to 6,000 soldiers. There's no need to try to come up with an exact number. The point here isn't that there was 3,000 or 2,000 or 3,600, as some people have conjectured. The point here is simply that there's a vast number of demons in this man. But the military language behind the word legion actually takes things one step further. It emphasizes the militant nature of their mission. It recalled the grip of the Roman legion on Palestine, which had been dominated by Pompeii less than 100 years before that. So this isn't just some haphazard gathering of demons, but somehow this man was being used for strategic purposes, for the forces of darkness. And that's what makes this account so unique. That despite this focal of evil power, notice this, this focal point of evil power, notice what it does in verse 10, and he begged him earnestly, not to send them out of the country. You catch what's going on here? Can you imagine a powerful, strong man on his knees begging? Could you see an army of thousands of soldiers on their knees clamoring for one man to not send them somewhere? It's a strong picture. What seemed to be such a formidable foe has become nothing less than a desperate vagabond. He's just asking for a new home, a new place to stay. So here's the conclusion of this big standoff. It's evident destruction. Evident destruction by Jesus. In verse 13, So He gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now notice this, Jesus gives the demons permission as to where they can go next. Does this not remind you of the account of Job? We get so worried about satanic opposition and influence and what he can do, but he can go no farther than God himself will allow. He has to come to God himself for permission. And so also, these demons come to Jesus for permission. And the only reason I'm pointing this out to you because it is so easy for us in our modern day, with Hollywood's influence on our understanding of the supernatural, to assume that Jesus and Satan are in some sort of cosmic wrestling match. And that they're equals, and that, that Jesus typically wins, but Satan potentially could. It is not worked that way. It is creator versus created. It is no contest. I think the scene here is actually pretty humorous. It's like, Mother may I on steroids. I mean, they're just asking if they can go to pig. This is why Martin Luther would say, by the way, that the devil is still God's devil. So we come to a weird question. But everybody's asking it. Why do these pigs die? <laughs> why do the pigs have to die? Why can't they just leave the man? I can imagine animals' rights activists just really having a hard time with this verse. Those innocent pigs. You know, the text doesn't tell us exactly why, but I think I have an idea. They wanted this to be an evident victory. As the effect of the demons, I'll put it this way. The effect of the demons on the herd visualizes for the man and the eyewitnesses 
the demonic and destructive forces that had dominated this man's body. So here we had one who was created in the image of God, resisting this demonic influence as it was trying to destroy him, this constant battle in his life. And then as these things are sent into the simple-minded pigs, it destroys them immediately. It's almost like showing someone who almost died in a car wreck and passed out the picture of the actual accident. This is what you came from. Or, Or for... The smart aleck teenage kid who doesn't realize how great their life really is and maybe they were premature and you show them the pictures of this is what it was like for you in the beginning. We didn't know if you were going to make it. And it's almost like when this man and these people can see these hosts of demonic forces going into these pigs and causing so much destruction right off the bat, they realize, wow. That was in him? That's what they wanted to do to him? And the dramatic, unlikely, impossible, long shot turnaround happened with mere words. No wrestling here. No great expenditure of energy on Jesus' part. Just, you can go. You know, as I reflect on this scene, one figure in church history captures the essence of Jesus' demonic authority particularly well. We sang one of his songs today, and I just referenced him a minute ago. It's Martin Luther. He's one of the prominent heroes of the Protestant Reformation. If you don't know much about that, this was the time that the gospel actually won back its own hearing from the Roman Catholic Church. Roman Catholics teach that were saved by grace through faith plus works. And the gospel of grace preached from the time of Jesus is salvation by grace through faith. Martin Luther was one of the leaders who helped recapture the gospel of grace that we preach here at Faith Bible School. And having often personally battled demonic darkness in his own life and in the world around him, he asks us these questions. And listen, this is great. He says, why should you fear? Why should you be afraid? Do you not know that the prince of this world has been judged? He is no lord or prince anymore. You have a different, stronger lord, Christ, who has overcome and bound him. Therefore, let the prince and God of this world look sour, bare his teeth and make a great noise, threaten and act in unmannerly ways. He can do no more than a bad dog on a chain, which may bark, run here and there and tear at the chain. But because it is tied, And you know to avoid it, it cannot bite you. So the devil acts toward every Christian. Therefore, everything depends on this. One, that we do not feel secure. But two, continue in the fear of God in prayer. And then the chained dog cannot harm us. But this chained dog may at least frighten him who would be secure and go ahead without caution. Although he may not come close enough to be bitten. That's why we read that passage today from Job. Leviathan and Behemoth were the most intimidating, creaturely forces known to those early patriarchs. Some think that it was dinosaurs. Some think that it was just these unknown creatures. And yet the point is that the thing that they feared the most, God exercised control over. 
thereby proving that only God can do this. It's along these, word, these lines that, that Luther would write in the hymn that we just sang. Did you notice the third verse? And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His tr truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Isn't that amazing? One word. The same word that created the world, the same word that calmed the storm, is the same word that controls the powers of darkness. That is the point of this passage. And with this, friend, we are invited to embrace Jesus' divine authority over evil. Now, remember I told you to place a pen in the little thought about satanic strongholds? Bring it back for a moment. Now think with me. Let's get back to our strongholds. These unconquerable, impenetrable, long-shot type of situations. And I asked, what are the satanic strongholds that you see in your own heart or home? And I even ran through the list. Pornography, same-sex attraction, out-of-control consumer debt, deteriorating marriage, or whether it's lust or anger or rage, it doesn't matter what it is. Unreceptive family members, you need to understand that one little word from Christ shall fail them. Have you relied upon Jesus and His person and work alone? You need to know something today. The power of evil over you has been broken. I would encourage you to read these texts I'm about to mention to you tonight with your small group or maybe by yourself. Write them down. They'll help you. If you're struggling about Satan's power over your past, you really have some major regrets the way things used to be, Ephesians 2, 1-6 through 6 reminds us you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But God. But God. He intervened. He rescued you. He saved you. He raised you with Christ. It doesn't matter anymore. You may have been dominated by Satan's schemes, but that is a past event. Things are different now. For those of you who are presently struggling with the power of sin in your own life, I'm reminded of Romans 6.14 that says that sin shall have no more dominion over us. Or if Colossians 2 verses 13 to 15. What I like about Colossians 2 is it actually couples together our past with the present powers of darkness. Notice this, he says, And you who are dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, talking about our uncleanness, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, that's good to know, and by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. 
There is nothing to worry about. There is no such thing as unconquerable sin in this lifetime. The power of Christ displayed in the resurrection is enough. You worry about your future. You keep struggling with some of the same temptations over and over again. This is where Andrew's lesson on glorification and systematic theology a couple weeks ago is so helpful. He read to the class that day, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, which says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Theologians call this the beatific vision. It's the fact that as soon as we see Jesus return, we will finally be perfectly like Him. You know the reason you're not like Him right now? called flesh you live in a sinful human body that's still cursed and jesus has not yet come to redeem that curse but he will and you will be sinless before him think back to those strongholds in our world those epicenters of vice and sin and corruption the organized anti-god rebellions against biblical marriage and sexual expressions and identity the urban communities ravaged by drugs and alcohol and fornication the growing religious movements and world powers that would stamp out the exclusive gospel of Jesus Christ, one little word shall fail them. The power of sin was broken at the cross, and it not only fixes our individual lives, but you think this world is messed up? Good guess. It is, and it will be fixed. That's why Romans 8 is so helpful, where it tells us in verses 20 and 21, the creation, talking about everything that was made, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The curse of sin on this world will be broken. The rebellion against God will be squashed, Revelation 21 tells us. It's the story itself that shows us that Jesus is bigger and brighter and better and stronger than any darkness we could possibly imagine. In time, he can triumph over any satanic stronghold. In time, he can triumph over any satanic stronghold. In eternity, he will triumph over any satanic stronghold. In eternity, he will triumph. So we move on from Act 2, the decisive victory, to a very surprising Act 3, the diverse response. Now as we get into this, and we're going to read a couple of passages here, I, I want you to note that Mark resists his popular theme of the people's response to Jesus, and he actually sets up a contrast here again between rejection and reception. That's what you need to note. As you look at the remainder of the verses that are here, you're going to see a contrast between rejection and deception. That's why I say it's a diverse response. Notice this response of rejection in verses 14 to 17. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Now the event makes quite a splash, pun intended. 
2,000 pigs have made their way into the land, and now people are upset about it. Think about it. This was the source of their financial livelihood. By the way, for those of you who are disturbed that 2,000 pigs died, it doesn't bother me that much, but if you care, they were going to die anyway, okay? <laughs> they weren't being raised as pets. They're being raised as food. And because of that, the economic livelihood of this particular village has been majorly threatened by Jesus' acts. And these guys are not happy. <laughs> Immediately, they run back into town to tell, presumably, the owners of these pigs exactly what had happened. You know how that goes. You tell the boss before somebody else tells the boss. But on their way, it was such a devastating loss that they're actually telling everybody what had happened. And so the people from Gergesa and the surrounding countryside began to arrive and see this drastic change. Notice, as they're getting there, they're seeing this guy who was a threat to their very existence sitting there dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid of it. It's interesting to me that they had become so accustomed to the dominance of evil that they actually feared its absence. This happens, by the way, with us. Somebody gets gloriously saved, they come from a life of sin and avarice, and then all of a sudden they hang out around their friends and they're like, what's wrong with you? What happened to you? They feel more uncomfortable around the guy who's been rescued out of his sin than they did the guy who reveled in his sin. Another interesting fact about this is that the account of Jesus' power calming a life-threatening situation with a mere word, what does it sound like to you? Very previous situation, does it not? And it begs the question, who is this? Who could do this? Ultimately, their conclusion is this, that this man needs to leave. He needs to leave. They actually, I love how the text says, they beg him to leave. They know better than to command him to leave. They beg him to leave. And such power over evil, it is unsettling. It upsets the status quo. It threats their financial well-being. They're, they're done with this. And they said, please go. Take this elsewhere. And these people, like so many unbelievers, they're experiencing something of like a, a spiritual Stockholm Syndrome. You've heard of that? It's this mysterious tendency of some people to come to love their abusers. The situation was first used when a, a group of thieves actually held some hostages up in a bank in Stockholm, Sweden in 1973. And the true story is that two of those captives one fell in love with one of the hostages and wanted to marry him in prison, and the other actually set up a defense fund for him to help get him out. Which set psychologists scrambling, like, why in the world would anybody do something like this? It doesn't make sense. And I would say that fearing the absolution and eradication of sin in one's life doesn't make any sense either. And yet we do it. If you're here today and you haven't received Christ and you've heard the gospel time and time again and you're just so scared of the effect that it may have in your life, do you really like the way things are? Do you like the consistent guilt that you feel over your sin? Do you like worrying about the presence of eternity in hell? Is that comfortable for you? 
It just makes me wonder, why? Why would people be that way? Such is the nature of sin. That's why Satan blinds the minds of those who do not believe. You and I see it and we're like, no, repent, receive Christ, trust in him. This is the best thing that could happen to you. And their friends would tell them, oh, don't go to that church. Don't hang around those people. Those are fanatics. There's another contrast here. It's not just rejection, but then we see reception in verse 18, and it's beautiful. Jesus acquiesces, and as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. So the people begged that he leaves. This guy begs that he can go along. And verse 19, he did not permit him, but said to him, go to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim into Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Now notice this response. The response from the man provides a fitting picture of discipleship and salvation. Here's four little facets. This is not a main point in the message, but for those of you who are taking notes, I think this is interesting. One, there's a moral change in this man. He is freed from sin's power. There's a clear contrast between his former self-destructive, out-of-control behavior and his present, reserved, ready-to-listen behavior. When you come to Jesus, it changes your life. Not only are there moral implications, but there are social implications. He was socially ostracized. He was an outcast. But now he's eager to learn and serve Jesus. That's why, by the way, that I think when people come to visit church and they are interested in the gospel, that the Lord is beginning to draw them to himself. Because it's so unnatural for the unsaved mind to want anything to do with a crucified and supposedly resurrected rabbi. But when you have that desire for Jesus, that's something otherworldly. When you want to be around him and you want to be around his people, that is evidence that you have truly submitted to him. And may I say, if you claim to be a Christian and you don't have a desire to be around Jesus, I would question whether or not you really belong to him. Thirdly, there's a volitional change in this man as well. He's obedient to Jesus. Notice that he says no to his own self and his own desire to be with Jesus to accomplish Jesus' mission. I want to be careful not to over-spiritualize this point, but sometimes it's easier to retreat with Jesus than to engage your own sphere of influence with the gospel. I see that happen all the time. I've seen several guys who were well-meaning and God had saved them gloriously and they have this desire to go run off to seminary or Bible college or something like that and to get away from their rough family situation when they need to probably stay where they're at and witness to their own friends and family about Jesus. And this guy resists that urge and he actually goes back to the hardest mission field, his own family and to his own pagan Gentile region and preaches the gospel. The man has a fruitful ministry in a pagan country. He's obedient to Jesus in that way. And then fourthly, there's a doctrinal change in this man. There's something that changes in his thinking about Jesus. He recognizes that Jesus alone is, quote-unquote, the Lord. That's the term that he uses, the Lord, who had mercy on him. Jesus says, go and tell others how the Lord had had mercy on you. And then what does he do? He goes and tells people what Jesus had done for him. What does that mean? He fully equates the Lord with Jesus. Now, he's actually the first one, first human in the gospel to fully recognize this. For this man, the Lord and the Jesus are one and the same. 
And this heel demoniac becomes the first missionary preacher sent out by Jesus. What I love about this is that in this, we have the ultimate before and after product demonstration. That's really what this is. If you've ever had a sleepless night, you have seen these incredible infomercials. Emphasis on in. To make the sale, you know how it works. They show your before and after picture. The before is always, and I don't know why they don't think people don't notice this, the before is always black and white, kind of blurry. And like if it's somebody trying to lose weight, their stomach's all sticking out and they're slunched over and they have no makeup on. And then the after picture is vibrant colors, shot with like a high-resolution camera. The people are well manicured, they're sucking everything in, everything looks very well defined. And, and the truth of the matter is, we remain skeptical at those things because we know that, okay, I saw the black and white filter versus the color filter. I saw you sucking in your stomach. <laughs> I know that fruit doesn't do that just because you stick it in a machine. I mean, there are just things where we just, we get it. We totally understand, like, like this is a setup. And we remain skeptical, and rightfully so. But can I say this? That sometimes, sometimes, we see a real life before and after. And it's undeniable. You've seen it. Somebody you haven't seen for a few years, like, whoa, what happened to you? Where'd all that weight come from? Like half of you. Or some people who were chronically sick are now all of a sudden better and vibrant and have energy. Some people who were clamoring and dead all of a sudden, I mean, it's reversed and it's notable. You know those kind of people. You're like, what happened to you? I think what we have here in these three acts is one amazing product demonstration. Evil has been abolished through the power of Jesus. And it's undeniable. Yet I would add that this isn't just a past tense event. The truth of this power still resides today. And through lives today that are transformed by the gospel, the ultimate product demonstration continues. At least it should. May I invite you as we close to consider the current effects of Jesus' divine power over evil. Just think about it for a second. What that looks like. What it should look like. Look, friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, even though hypocrites abound, I have to ask this, and I can only say this if, if I'm being sincere. I wish you knew me better. But don't, don't you like what you see? I mean, don't you like the fact that, that people like want to remain married and they want to raise godly families and they try to operate their businesses with integrity and they seem to have some sense of values? Like, isn't, isn't that attractive? Why? Because the power of Jesus has pushed back against the darkness in their life. Will they be perfect? No. Will they blow it sometimes? Yes. But overall, the pattern of a true Christian's life is something to say, this is beautiful. Look at what God has done in me. 
by the way, don't look at just those fringe Christians that you could always point to the mistakes to. I mean, look at the people who you know are faithful and consistent and godly. On a larger scale, have you just noticed, excluding Christianity's imposters like the Roman Catholic Church and the cults, have you noticed that the gospel eventually impacts cultures and schools and improved living conditions and colleges and hospitals and fair treatment for women? Why? Because the power of Jesus pushes back against the darkness. That's why wherever Christianity goes, it leaves good things in its wake. And the number one objection of the agnostic, by the way, would be, well, what about the Inquisition? That's why I said exclude Roman Catholic imposters. True Church of Jesus Christ would never want to blow anybody up or cut somebody down for not believing in Jesus. Our response to those who persecute us should be, according to John 13, love. Members of Faith Bible Church, embrace the divine power of Jesus over evil today. How? If you're plagued by guilt and defeat, has it been a very good week for you? Through his power, you need to be reminded today that you can be set free. Maybe the most practical thing for you to do this afternoon is to review and memorize the verses that I mentioned a few moments ago. You know what? By the way, you're part of a church. You're not doing this thing alone. You should be able to enlist a team of gospel partners to come alongside you and help you fully realize this victory. Sometimes you won't remember to say those verses to yourself. Sometimes you may need someone else to call you and share those with you. And thirdly, if you're here today, you're a member of Faith Bible Church and you've seen this power, you know what you do with this? Same thing this man did. You talk about it. You tell somebody in your own sphere of influence. You tell a non-Christian that you know this week, maybe even over the table at Thanksgiving, about how Jesus, the Lord, has changed your life. And look, I'll give you an out. Blame it on the pastor if you need to. Say, my pastor this weekend at the church told me that I need to tell somebody about Jesus' power, and I wanted to tell you. And see where it goes. People need to know that Jesus is stronger than demonic darkness. There's an alternate translation to Luther's hymn. And I like the way it's worded. I think it fi finds a fitting conclusion for us. He says, Though devils all the world should feel, all eager to devour us, we tremble not, we fear no ill, they shall not overpower us. This world's prince may still scowl, fierce as he will. He can harm us none, he's judged, the deed is done. One little word can tell us. Praise be to God. Jesus has decimated the darkness. Let's pray. Lord, if this sermon has been anything, it's been an extended prayer of praise to you for your power. I pray that you've been honored in it. And I ask that you would continue to be honored in our lives this week. Pray that we would preach this message with our lives and our lips. And for those who do not know you, we pray that they would repent of their sin today and submit themselves in full faith to your glorious rule and reign. Honor yourself in this way today. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.